0: Morning Redemption Church. How are you guys? Just for you, Ben. Well, my name's Jesse. Um, some of you guys know me. I have been part of this church for as far back as I can remember. Uh, my parents snuck into what was the Duval Church back when I was probably second grade. So I've grown up in this community. This is my home. I love it. If I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. Come meet me. Um, I'm not that scary. I might be bald and bearded, but I'm not that scary. Um, uh, I'm the new youth intern. I'm pretty stoked about that. I get to work with some awesome people, uh, youth in particular, and the leaders of mine. So uh, this is home. I love it. And it's a privilege to be up here this morning. I'm stoked. Um, I want to start off with prayer, because if you can't tell, I'm nervous, and I need Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you, Jesus, as a church that, uh, that needs you day in and day out. Um, God, I thank you for this group that stands before me, Father. I pray that you'll use them to be a missionary to this community, to this town, to this world, Father. Um, I pray for the words that will be spoken this morning, Jesus, that they won't be mine that I can boast, but that they will be yours, Father, that they will be what needs to be spoken, um, and that people will go home with a, with a sense of how great you are and how awesome you are. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray you bless it. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. So I want to bring to you guys uh, an attribute of God or a characteristic of God that I don't think uh, gets talked about. It's it's understood, but I feel like if you're like me, it's hard to believe, Um, and that is that God has a wild side. Now, when I say wild side, I don't mean that uh, he takes risks. God doesn't take risks. I'm not saying that when... uh, when a person who has a wild side, so like I think of, uh, I'm a dirt biker, so I think of a guy by the name of Travis Pastrana. Some of you guys might know him. He, he takes risks. Now, he's good at what he does, but when he jumps off that jump and he does some death-defying trick in the air, he's taking a risk. He doesn't know if he's going to land. He's unsure of the outcome. He's living on the edge. God doesn't live on the edge. I don't think God sits here and chooses the hard route and says, ooh, I hope it works out but I think he has a wild side. And what I mean by wild side, I mean is somebody who chooses a harder route instead of the easier route. I mean somebody who, who says, I, I'm not unsure of the outcome, I'm not taking a risk, but I'm not choosing the easy route to, to obtain the same goal. Um, for example, now, a climber. I am not a climber. I hate heights and uh, have no skill in climbing. So for those of you who are climbers, you will correct me after service, but forgive me and just deal with it for now. Um, a climber skilled in his sport has the ability to scale up a wall. Uh, the goal is to get to the top, maybe it's to check out the view, maybe it's to ring the bell, maybe just to have a, you know bragging rights so that you made it up to the top. Now a climber, let's say, let's say you're a pretty good climber and you approach this wall and on one side of the wall you have an easy route. So the handhelds are placed pretty uh, spaced out and they're, they're not too hard to get to. It doesn't take much effort to scale up the wall and reach the top. Now down here you have A different kind of wall and it has a harder route on it. Same goal, same top, but this one takes a little bit more uh, strength. Maybe you're, you know, awkwardly positioned as you're climbing up it. Um, It's not easy by any means. Now, a skilled climber with the confidence and ability to make it up the hard route has the choice. He says, hey, my goal is the same. I want to get to the top. I want to see the view. So he can approach it and be like, well, today I'm lazy. I'm going to take the easy route but I do have the skill and the confidence to take the hard route. And he can get up there without necessarily taking a risk. He's not taking a risk doing the hard route. It just takes more work. God chooses the hard route. I feel like when God wants to advance his kingdom, he doesn't choose the easy route. He chooses the hard route. He's not unsure of the outcome. He's not taking a risk, but he seeks people... Maybe with a sketch past, people with uh, not the best reputation, and he uses them to achieve his goal. Again, the goal is the same. God can advance his kingdom using anyone, but story after story and person after person screams that he uses the harder route than the easy route. I want to present to you this morning three stories in the Bible. Run through them. Um, That depict that God uses the hard route that God doesn't choose easier, that God uses people who don't have the best reputation, that aren't made for maybe what they're supposed to do, and God uses them to advance his kingdom. The first one is of a baby. Now, this baby was born into a people who occupied a land they did not own. This baby was born uh, into slavery. This baby was born below um, the authority of a pharaoh. Now, pharaoh, pharaoh feared this baby's people, the Israelites, He feared them so much so that he was worried about overpopulation, and so what he did was he sent out a decree and said, every male baby born will be thrown into the Nile so that they will drown, so that the Israelites can't reproduce. And so what happens? Moses is born. Baby Moses is born. And his mom finds him a fine young man, and like any mom, would not want to give him up. So what does she do? She hides him. Three months, she hides him, until it becomes too unsafe to hide him any longer. And so what does she do? She weaves a basket, sets baby Moses in this basket, puts him in the river. The same river that was meant for death and destruction to a male baby is now meant for life and possible rescue for this baby. Moses floats on down river, three-month-old baby in a basket, ends up on the shores of the daughter of Pharaoh's courts. The daughter of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who decided that all these babies should die because he didn't want them to grow into a great nation and take over Egypt is now the daughter who takes in this Hebrew baby and says, I want to raise it, I want to protect it. Moses grows up in a court that doesn't belong to him. This is not a Hebrew court, this is not his home, but he grows up in the courts of the Egyptians. Becomes a fine young man, he's outside one day, watching his fellow Hebrew slave away. It wasn't easy slavery. And he sees this Egyptian guard, and these Egyptian guard's beating up on, uh, on a Hebrew. And so Moses steps in. What does Moses do? Moses kills the Egyptian guard when no one's looking. Buries the evidence, goes on about his day. The next day he's out there. He sees two Hebrews fighting amongst themselves. Moses is like, hey, steps up, but the Hebrews themselves are like, what, are you going to kill us too and bury us? Moses freaks out, finds out that Pharaoh heard of the news of him killing an Egyptian guard. Pharaoh's after him. What does Moses do? He runs. He runs. He's a fugitive. He runs. Off into the desert he goes. He uh, Comes upon a well in Midian. Uh, long story short, he marries a, uh, marries a daughter of a priest and becomes a shepherd. Can you imagine that? He goes from living in the courts of a Pharaoh to shepherding out in the desert for his father-in-law's flocks. He comes upon a, he's out there shepherding one day, comes upon a burning bush. Now, the bush is ablaze, but it itself is not burning up. So Moses is like, Well, what the heck's going on here? Walks up loud voice speaks, Moses, take off your sandals, for the ground you stand upon is holy. Moses does so, takes off his sandals. The voice says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. Moses freaks out, gets to the ground, because he does not want to look on God's face, and, uh, m- and God says, I have seen the destruction. I have seen the harm done to my people in Egypt. I've seen their cries in captivity while they're enslaved. He says, I want to save them, and Moses, I'm going to use you. Moses is sitting there, he's like, why me? You don't understand, God. I'm a, I'm a slave, or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fugitive who became a shepherd. I have no right to go back to the country I ran from. But God says, no, you're going to go. He goes, I'm going to give you the power to, to move mountains. I'm going to give you the power to cause plagues. I'm going to give you the power to let Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses says, no, you don't understand. I'm, I can't talk. I, I, I'm slow at speech. I stutter. He goes, how, how is a stuttering shepherd became fugitive? How is he supposed to lead the people? This mass people called the Israelites, how am I supposed to lead them out of the, out of the hands of Pharaoh? And God says, go. So Moses is faithful. Moses goes. Moses goes and he comes to uh, Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And plague after plague and hardship after suffering, Pharaoh finally lets Israel go. Not for long, though, he ends up chasing them. The Israelites pass through. God does this awesome miracle where he separates the water so that the Israelites can pass through on dry ground in the middle of the sea. They get to the other side. Pharaoh and his soldiers run after them. Water comes crashing down. Takes out Pharaoh and his soldiers. The next story is that of a rent. This man, or this boy, youngest of his family, was nothing more than a shepherd. He, uh, he was, sure, he was a fine-looking young man, but he had the dirty job of the family. He was the youngest, so he got past the, the deal of shepherding. And, uh, and God gets to a point where he says, hey, I want a new king over my Israelites. He says, I have I rejected Saul. His time is up. And he tells his, his uh, servant, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse Says to Jesse, hey, I'm going to anoint one of your sons as the king over Israel. Bring your sons forth. So Jesse brings up his oldest, fine-looking young man. Samuel goes, ah, he's the man. He is it. Look at him. He is perfect. And God says, no, he's not the one I'm going to anoint. So Samuel says, okay, next. Next man comes up, and Samuel goes, surely this is the one. Surely this is the one. God says, no, you don't understand. I don't look at the inward appearance. Or that the outward appearance of a man. To look at the inward. So, seven sons passed before Samuel. Seven of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel. Samuel gets to the end, and he's like, do you have any more? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, but he's the youngest. He's out there shepherding my flocks. Like, how, how is he going to become king? Samuel says, bring him to me. As soon as David came, he was anointed. David went into the service of Saul. He had a skill for playing harp, which... Uh, Calm Saul's nerves since uh, God kind of rejected him. And, uh, and he uh, ends up the time that uh, the Israelites go off to war. And they go up against a people known as the Philistines. They're out there, and there's, there's this giant man who, uh, who comes out from the Philistine camp, and he says, send out one of your men, and the men and whoever dies between the match of two of us become slaves to the other. And so what do the Israelites do? They cower. They just hide. They're, they're, uh, they're on the other side of the hill. They're freaking out. They don't have a man strong enough to go fight Goliath because he's like this, I think, nine-foot-tall man. I mean, he's big. His, his armor weighs a ton. So what does David do? David gets sent out by his father Jesse to bring food to his brothers who are in the Israelite camp. And David, or Jesse's like, David, you know, bring this food and bring back report to your brothers. Let me know how they're doing. So David, David goes, and he sees this man, this tall giant out there in the, in the field, taunting and taunting and taunting the Israelites. David asks, finds out that, hey, he wants to fight just one of us, but no one's brave enough to approach this giant. So David says, I'll go. David says, I've got God on my back. I'll go. So David goes to Saul's courts. So Saul calls him in, puts on Saul's armor. This is too, you know, too big, doesn't fit. It's not right. So what does David do? He approaches this nine-foot-tall man with nothing more than his um, staff, and is slain in five stones. He approaches the man, and he says, you come at me with swords and shields, but I came at you with the Lord God Almighty. And he sinks a rock right there in his forehead. Goliath falls. The Philistines run. The Israelites chase after. David gets praised for this. People are like, ah, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So David gets this, this reputation. Uh, a little while later, Saul dies. David becomes king, as he was anointed to um, there's a lot more detail in that story right there. Some of you guys have heard that. But when David becomes king, he, he doesn't enter into this perfection in life. He's not like, oh, now he's king. He's this great king. He's perfect. No, David still messes up. He ends up, uh, he ends up seeing a woman, sleeps with her, finds out she's married to one of his mighty men, the men he had trained up. So what does he do? He has the mighty man killed so to hide his tracks. David, this, this, this guy, this shepherd who was anointed as king, becomes an adulterous murderer. Next story. Next story is that of a different Saul. Some of you guys will know him. He's, he's in the New Testament. Now, this Saul, this Saul was a man of the law. He lived and breathed the law. But see, the law brought death in his eyes. He, uh, he was known as a man who breathed out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It's said in uh, Acts 9 that Mos- or that, uh, Paul or Saul would uh, send letters from the high priest he worked under to the synagogues so that he could seek out and destroy the church, seek out and destroy the people who followed the way. The way is a term that Jesus refers to him. So essentially, Paul or Saul is seeking out men who claim to be Christians so that he can imprison them and destroy them. See, in his eyes, these Christians were breaking the law. The law means that they deserve imprisonment, they deserve deserve harm, and they deserve maybe death for what they've done. Now Saul is on his way to Damascus. He has letters with him sent to the synagogue there so he can seek out the church and destroy it there, and he's on his way, and he meets Jesus. Jesus comes in this bright light Saul falls to the ground. This loud voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so Saul says, Saul says, Lord, I'm not worthy. And, and Jesus says, now go to Damascus where, you will, where I will tell you what to do. And now Jesus then goes to a, a man in Damascus, a disciple of him, and he's, it's, his name is Ananias. And Ananias is told that Saul is coming and you're supposed to go restore his sight to him. Now, can you imagine? Here's Ananias in Acts 9, and he's saying, but God, don't you understand who Saul is? He's not kind to us. He's not not nice to us. He doesn't want us. He wants to destroy us. Ananias is like, I know you're good and all, God, but you don't understand who this man is. And God's like, no, go. Restore his sight. I'm going to use him. So Ananias is faithful. Ananias goes, um, approaches Saul, says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, restores your sight. Saul's sight is restored. Saul then takes a little time to recover his strength. And what does he do? He goes out and he preaches the gospel. Now, Saul's reputation was so big that everyone, he wasn't just some new man. You know, if some guy rolled into Duval, we wouldn't know who he was. But if Obama or name another big-name person in our country rolled in, we would know who he was. Now, Saul was someone who was known. He had a reputation, and he especially had a reputation for harming the church. He had just come from Jerusalem where he caused havoc in the church, where he harmed the disciples. And here he is, the same man who these people have heard of, is up on the street corner preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. You see, his reputation made the Jews so baffled that he was out there proving that Jesus was the Christ. And yet when he returned to Jerusalem, he went to go to approach the disciples. And the disciples were still scared of him. They're like, no, we don't want anything to do with you. You have harmed us. You have hurt us. You have killed us. You have imprisoned us. They refused Saul. But Saul finds another disciple, ends up starting these missionary journeys, planting churches. He becomes Paul. Paul meaning God's chosen. Paul. The Paul who wrote a good two-thirds of the New Testament. The Paul who planted churches who raised up young men like Timothy. This Paul was Saul. Saul taught the law and that the law brought death. Paul taught grace and that grace brings life. Now what's amazing about these stories is not just the stories themselves. It's not the stories of a deliverance of the Israelites, it's not the stories of a kingdom being brought up by a shepherd. It's not the story of churches planted What's awesome about these stories are the people in them and how God used them. You've got Moses. Moses, the great I am, told Moses to go to the town or to the, the country he ran from. Moses was nothing more than a stuttering fugitive who became a shepherd. And God says, go, you're going to lead my people out. And then you've got David. David was an adulterous murderer, the youngest of the family, the runt, God says you're going to become a great king. God calls him a man after his own heart. The same David who is known for all this, all this destruction and his mighty men and yet he becomes a man after God's own heart. And then you've got Saul who was first, who was first a man who sent letters from the high priest to bring death and imprisonment to the church. Then he becomes Paul who sends letters from the one true high priest to bring life to bring freedom according to grace. And it is Paul that ends up in prison, that ends up beaten, that ends up persecuted for his faith. Now maybe, maybe I haven't sold you on this profound truth yet. Maybe you're thinking that these three men were just lucky or that these three men were deep down, you know, the Bible doesn't say, but they were really good men. Um, Maybe you were like me when I was in sixth grade and thought there's no way God can use me look at me, I'm messed up, I've, I've got sins like none other, there are a lot better people out there, and that these three men I just explained were lucky. I beg to differ. See, proof right here in the Bible, story after story, that our God has a wild side, that he doesn't take the easy route when it comes to advancing his kingdom. You see, he uses Abraham, a pagan, to father his people Israel. He uses... Uh, Joseph, a dreamer, sold into slavery by his very own brothers, to become Pharaoh's right hand man and save the people in the famine. He uses Moses, that stuttering shepherd, to free God's people. He uses Rahab, a prostitute, to hide the Israelite spies. And he uses the Israelites themselves to march around Jericho seven times and then sound their trumpet and the wall comes crashing down and the Israelites conquer the land. He uses David, that shepherd. With a stone to kill a giant, and that same shepherd to become a king, a mighty king, a man after God's own heart. He uses Nehemiah, a mere cupbearer in a land that is not his own, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He uses a Samaritan woman at the well who had five husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. And Jesus uses her to go back to the town. And what does she do? She points to Jesus and says, He's the one. That's the gospel. He uses 12 disciples, 12 disciples that weren't your, weren't your good, godly men necessarily, weren't your, weren't your educated men. He, like Andrew. Andrew was a fisherman. Andrew didn't make it in the schooling. He didn't find a rabbi. He took up his father's, his father's work, not because he wanted to, but because that was the only thing he could do. Andrew, an uneducated man, became a disciple. He uses Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, a social trader. He was a Jew working for the Romans. Jews didn't like him. He stole from them. God uses him. God says, come. He uses Peter, a fisherman turned disciple, who denies Jesus three times in the hardest time. And can you imagine your best friend is going through the hardest time in his life and you're too scared of what people will do or think of you, so you deny knowing him? Peter did that. And it is that same Peter that Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock that I will build my church upon. Peter means rock. Jesus is gonna use Peter to build his church not a building, but a people. He uses Mary, a young virgin, to carry the Son of God. He uses Joseph, a carpenter, betrothed to Mary, to raise the Son of God. He uses a young man by the name of Timothy who's looked down on for his age to carry the responsibilities of the church, even to death. He uses me, a homeschooled redneck mechanic. You see, if... uh, in sixth grade, if you had told me I would be here this morning, or have an internship, or uh, be a youth leader, or do things I've done, I would have laughed and said, there's no way. There's no way. God wouldn't want to use me. We were at this uh, youth conference uh, in Seattle. It was a service conference. It's called Youth Quest. Um, sixth grade, I think it was my second event with the youth group. And uh, essentially what it was, was in the morning you wake up, you have a service, um, there would be uh, talk and worship, and then you go out and you serve and uh, I think the first day I went and served at an m s home uh, we did gardening there, and then the next day we fed the homeless and the next day we uh we worked out a church, i guess i think um, and on the last night they did a they did a kind of an altar call, and the guy who was up there said, "You know Jesus wants you, he has grace for you, he loves you he 's going to use you and I remember sitting there in the pew and i can look i I, I clearly remember looking to my right and seeing one of my good friends and I said. Jesus wouldn't use me, but he would use her. I have, I have a reputation. I have, I have sins that, that cover me. Why would God want to use me? She's right there. And I remember sitting there, and people started leaving, and JP was the youth pastor at the time, and JP came up, and he sat down next to me, and I, I explained to him what I was thinking, that, that I'm sure God's gracious, but he doesn't want me. Why would he want me? I really wanted God to want me, but I didn't think he would want me. JP explained to me that God does want me, that he takes our sins and not only throws them as far as the east is from the west, but he nails them to the cross. They go to the grave with Jesus, and Jesus rose three days later to give us life. I remember sitting there and thinking, does he really want me? And JP was like, yes, he really, really wants you. He died for you. He loves you. That day, I, uh, I made it my own. It wasn't something that my parents passed down to me. It wasn't something that became tradition in my family. It became my own. I found a God who has grace enough, who is big enough to cover my sins, who had the power to take a man like me and use me. See, I'm a daily reminder that our God has a wild side. I'm a daily reminder that I did not do it on my own. I don't have to look very far to know that God uses people who have a broken past. Because every time I look in the mirror, I don't see a man who deserves God's grace. I don't see a man who did something good enough to earn God's grace. I don't see a man who's worked hard enough to earn God's grace. Because it's not by our works, but it is merely by the grace of God that I am up here on stage today. That I am that I am a youth intern, that I have come from a sixth grader who didn't think God was big enough to take my sins to becoming a man who says, no, God is big enough to take your sins. And he wants to use you. Sure brings humility, huh? That we stand here as as men and women, brothers and sisters, and we say it's not on our own doing. We can never work hard enough to reach heaven. We can never do anything good enough to get God's grace aside of the fact that God is just graceful and loving forgiving, and he wants us. Romans 5, 7 says it pretty good. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, us, you, me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still occupied graves, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still lost, while we were still dead, Christ died for us. Redemption, you, me, redeemed, forgiven, loved. You are now soldiers in the army of Christ. And see, that doesn't mean we sit on our butts and we we say, okay, we wait for the day for God to come. No, we advance his kingdom. He uses us broken men and women to advance his kingdom. See, outside those doors lies a mission field. And I don't mean you have to fly to Africa, and I don't mean you don't have to fly to Mexico or wherever. And I'm not saying those are bad, but our mission field starts maybe even within these doors. You have a gospel within you that saves men because the God is big enough to take their sins. God is loving enough to to crucify their sins. God wants them and you have that gospel. We need to live with the understanding that there are imperfect people in desperate need of a perfect God. There's this man named Rick. Now, Rick understood this. He understood that there was an imperfect people who needed a perfect God. But you see, his mission field was a little different. His mission field was smaller, um, he, he couldn't leave his mission field. Uh, Rick lived in upstate New York in a Supermax prison. You see, his, his mission field was confined by tall walls and barbed wire and guards with guns. He wasn't allowed to leave. But Rick knew Jesus. He knew Jesus at the time that a man by the name of David, David was staying at this prison, serving out, I think it was, six life sentences. David, maybe some of you guys will recognize his name as Son of Sam. Maybe that rings a bell. Son of Sam, David. David was uh, a murderer. He killed. He took innocent blood. He had no reason. Um, he he just was not good. He was known for uh, for his uh, for his satanic worship. He was known for staying up at night and howling and screaming, and, and he was known for just being possessed. He was a crazy man. But what does Rick do? Rick doesn't say no. Not him. He's too far gone. Like Ananias, Rick was faithful. Now, maybe his mindset was, well, God, if you want me to go after him, I will. But you don't know what he's done. But Rick was faithful, and he was persistent. It says here, uh, uh, out of David's testimony, it says, Ten years into my prison sentence, I was feeling despondent and without hope. Another inmate, Rick, came up to me one day as I was walking in the prison yard on a cold winter's night. He introduced himself and began to tell me, that Jesus Christ loved me and wanted to forgive me. Again, we're talking about Son of Sam. If you don't know who he is, go look him up. He did not do good things. And although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God could ever use me or that he would want anything to do with me. Sounds familiar, huh? That's how I thought in sixth grade. But see, Rick, Rick was persistent. Rick Kept pushing God's love, and God's grace, and the gospel to David. David, one night, he was reading in the Bible that uh, he was given to by Rick, and David was, got down on his knees next to his bed, shut off the light so that no one would see him, and he wept. And he said, when he got up off his knees, he was not the same man as he was when he got down. David David understands his sins and he understands the consequences that followed and he regrets them but he knows that there's a God big enough to take his sins and nail them to the cross and take them to the grave and rise again to give David life. David knows that. Our God has a wild side. He uses men like those three in the Old Testament. He uses men like me, he uses men like David, he uses men like Rick. You see, Jesus, at the end of his ministry here on earth, he commissioned 11 men, 11 uneducated, 11 rejected, 11 rebellious, 11 men we would not choose because they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were, they were not strong enough to stand by Jesus' side when he was being tortured. He spoke to those men, and he said, all authority has been given to me here on earth and in heaven. Therefore, go, go baptize the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am. The same I am that spoke to Moses, the same I am that said, Moses, go. And Moses was like, no, you don't understand, I'm a stuttering fugitive. Why would I go back to a kingdom that wants to kill me and free of people who don't like me? And God says, I am ascending you. The same I am who said to David, go, kill that Goliath. I'm on your side. The same I am who went to the cross for us, that same I am will be with us always, even to the very end of the age. He used those 11 men to rock the world for ages. Imagine what he can do with us. Imagine what he can do with a redneck mechanic. Imagine what he can do with uh, a farmer. Imagine what he can do with just a small town businessman. Imagine what he can do with you. No matter how checkered your past is, no matter how... um, how much sin you think you've, had, you've accumulated, it doesn't matter. That got nailed to the cross because he loves you and wants you. I want to close with this, Redemption Church. May you not leave here today thinking that God takes risks and he's unsure of the outcome, that he's biting his fingernails in anticipation of seeing what's going to happen, that he's worried that we're going to mess it all up, but that a perfect God uses us An imperfect people saved by his perfect grace to advance the only kingdom that matters in a battle that is already won. Redemption Church, brothers and sisters, our God has a wild side. Let's pray. Jesus, you're too good to us. The God of gods, the king of kings, and you love us. You love me. Father, my sin, my what I've done weighed me down, but Jesus, you took that to the cross and you nailed it and you left it there and you said you are a new man. God, may we not leave here thinking that you take risks in us, but that you are a perfect God who wants to use us and imperfect people. Father, I thank you for this church. I pray that our mission field We'll start today, Father, that our mission field will not be something you have to fly to necessarily, God, but there's something we just have this radiance amongst us because the love and redemption and the grace of God is in us. God, may we never forget that is not something we can boast in, but that it is your greatness shining through us. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.